Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how we can work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Kathy Leff. For more than 30 years, Kathy Leff has been leading critical cultural institutions in the city of Miami. She's a seasoned creative entrepreneur who has specialized in conceiving, developing, and executing cultural strategies and initiatives for the city, with a particular interest in the intersection of culture and community building. Her first appointment was as assistant director of the City of Miami's Community Development Department, where she was responsible for the neighborhood economic and community development projects, overseeing its Art in Public Places Committee. Currently, she is the director of the Bakehouse Art Complex, a leading incubator for artistic creativity in the city. Bakehouse enables more than 100 artists to not only create their work, but to share it with the broader community. Prior to the Bakehouse, Kathy served as a director of the Wolfsonian Museum, negotiating its gifting to Florida International University and helping the university secure state approval and funding. And from 1990 to 2014, she served as the executive editor and publisher of the award-winning Journal of Decorative and Propaganda Arts, noted for its interest in the scholarship of the historical period between 1875 and 1945. Kathy, welcome to On Cities. I'm so happy to be talking to you live from the Bakehouse. And so great to be here. Thank you so much, Carrie. And hello to your listening audience. Thank you. So, Kathy, we're going to begin um, probably at the beginning. Where were you born? And how did your early childhood experiences shape your views about cities? Well, I was actually born in Brooklyn. Though my family, my parents did not live in Brooklyn. They lived in rural, then what was then rural Connecticut at the time. But my mother, being a Brooklyn girl, um, thought the only competent doctors were in Brooklyn. So um, all of us were, just about all of us, there's five siblings, but three of us were delivered by appointment in Brooklyn. <laughs> so induced, induced labor. But um, the first seven years of my life were spent in uh, what was then rural Connecticut. Now it's a developed city. And this was all you know, post-war in the 50s, when parts of, you know, when there were urban, small rural towns were starting to urbanize. So this was Meriden, Connecticut. But the time that I lived there, it was all in the planning process. And most of the land around us, we lived on a hill with about 10 families. And the major owner of um, property was the farmer. So we basically lived on a dairy farm. And I love that. I mean, the strongest memories of my childhood are really the idea of rural America and rural Connecticut and farming. My parents moved to Miami or South Florida in 1959. 
And um, shortly thereafter, we moved to Hollywood, Florida, which was really a small town. So my ideas about cities, I mean, I would often go, my, my mother's family and father's family were all from Manhattan and New York City, Brooklyn and the Bronx. And I would go, on, we would often go on vacation there. That's where our family was. So the idea of a big city, but having this rural experience. And when I left South Florida to go away to school, I never thought I would come back. I really thought I would wind up in a big city. So so it's interesting listening to you speak. You really have a balance between, you know, this kind of big city and the more uh, rural landscapes, you know, which is not always the case. But what brought you back to Miami? What was it that brought you yeah, back? So I went away to college um, at Tulane University and did my junior year in Spain. And I was actually, I, I was pre-med during Tulane and my parents encouraged me to do my junior year abroad. So um, I had studied Spanish in high school. I was proficient enough to get into the Spanish program and spent the year in Madrid at the University of Madrid, Complutense. And um, so when I was there, I started out in pre-med. My parents thought it was okay to delay another year and come back and just have a great experience in Europe for the year since it was like a once in a lifetime experience. And so I went and took them up on that. And um, during the year I was in Spain, I not only fell in love with art and architecture, but I also fell in love with a Spanish guy and thought the only way I could get back to see him was to clear Spanish as my major in my senior year and go back and do a research project there. I was like really a little bit crazy in my youth and probably a lot not so quite focused, but my agenda had shifted the year I was in Spain. So from pre-med, I realized you know, watching people suffer in pain that I could endure pain, but I really can't tolerate other people in pain. And I really, you know, did excelled in science and math and, uh, you know, sort of the STEM, um, STEM disciplines. So I, while I was in Spain and studying art history and all kinds of other things, I realized maybe architecture would be an option for me. So when I came back, I actually applied to graduate school in architecture um, I was planning to go to Cornell because it had a three-year master's program for people who did not do undergraduate architecture. So I came back to Miami or to Hollywood, let's say. And um, and in those days, Hollywood was so small. When people asked me, where are you from? I would just say Hollywood, <laughs> you know, hoping they would think I was from the other Hollywood. But it's actually quite a nice place now. Um, and so I came back here between undergraduate and what was to be graduate school, met somebody decided I really wanted to stay, fell in love. Um, that ultimately ended. But um, when I came back here, you know, my parents said, okay, if you're not going to graduate school, you have to start working. And so my first job was with Miami-Dade County in a division of the county manager's office, working on issues. It was in an ombudsman office. And what we tried to do is look at service delivery issues of the county, of county government. And then I was recruited a year later by the city of Miami to start a similar type of program for city residents so that they could help navigate and find their way around city services. And, you know, the city could also identify where there were gaps in service delivery. Um, from that, you know, I took on other things within the city government. And like you said, um, became assistant director of the Department of Community Development in the days when um, Miami was the poorest, one of the poorest cities in America and deriving a lot of, you know, big benefits from the uh, Community Development Block Grant Program, which is like a big entitlement program to invest in, you know, low and moderate income neighborhoods or blighted neighborhoods to try to stabilize them economically, physically, and, you know, socially. Yeah, so, and maybe that still is true. I mean, Miami, uh, you know, is a growing urban metropolis with, you know, sort of 
pockets of extreme wealth, but there's also large sectors of the city today that are still, you know, quite poor. And so I think um, the work that you were doing back then, I think also probably as we continue our conversations will um, influence some of the discussions with the work that you're currently doing with the bakehouse and even the surrounding neighborhoods. Um, so, I mean, it was interesting to hear you speak that you actually um, were going to study medicine because I, I I maybe always thought that you, your background was in the arts, in fact, but it seems like you were STEM-based or maybe you would be the advocate for STEAM, yeah, totally. you know, a STEAM-based uh, focus in education, right? Where the arts and the sciences are not ad- adversarial, right. but they're complementary, right? I always studied art and in a very informal way. I, you know, loved to go into museums. I liked art making and wasn't very good at it, but I, you know, studied music. I, you know, went to art classes and stuff like that, but I always did it. And, and even in college, the university, you know, I took a lot of electives in, you know, um, in different, you know, studio art pro- um, pro- um, classes. So, I had that interest always, but I think my, I always thought my proficiency was more on the science and technical sides. Yeah. Well, I think when you speak with anyone who is successful in any career, um, they, no one arrives at that point by themselves. They always have great mentors. That's been my experience and, um, and the experience that I've learned from many that I've spoken with. And in your case, Mickey Wilson has been a longtime friend. But, but it can certainly be said, or perhaps you could describe him as a mentor. And for the listeners that might not be familiar with Mickey Wolfson and his work, who is he and what were the greatest lessons that he taught you? So Mickey Wolfson, Mitchell Wolfson Jr., known to most as Mickey, is a comes from a Miami-based, a Miami family. It's um, actually five generations in Florida. And the family has always been um, in building the city and building the community. So they were the, the his father was the founder of Miami-Dade College, which is the now the largest community college in the country in the United States. Um, the family was always interested in education and always interested in giving back. So it was a family that was very successful. Mickey studied um, comparative literature and politics and was went on to graduate school at uh, the School of Advanced International Studies and entered the diplomatic corps. He's, I mean, if anybody who meets him would not, uh, could not envision him with a, uh, any type of full-time, you know, real job, but, um, I mean, he was trained as a diplomat. He had a strong interest in, you know, comparative studies, and he also served in, uh, the consulate in Genoa and in Turin. So obviously this was a time after the war cities that were just, um, that were defined then by the World War II. I mean, his father served in World War II. Mickey was born in 1939. So a lot of the things that he started collecting, ultimately collecting and trying to uh, save were objects and artifacts that showed how human intention, human um, creativity, and human agendas are expressed in objects that man makes. So he started amassing a collection of what we call decorative and propaganda arts or arts of uh, persuasion, uh, things that nobody collected. It was the other, the many other stories of modernity. So things that MoMA wouldn't have collected, he collected. Um, ephemera, you know, all kind. I mean, all the art movements and like, you know, like the journal. It was 1875 to 1945. So he amassed a huge collection. Tried to figure out what to do with it. I was brought on at a time that he also brought somebody on to see about how to formalize the collection. 
And today it's an established international museum and research center based in Miami Beach with a branch in Genoa, Italy, that really examines the persuasive power of art and design and how it really influenced what people buy or buy into, subscribe to, and really looking at all the rises of the masses. Mm-hmm. So it was the rise of the industrial age. We're now in a different a different age. So I think it's a really relevant collection, the Wolfsonian, um, to really understand the times and the impact of the images and the mass communication bombardment of things that we receive in our everyday life now through so many different platforms and technologies to um, influence, you know, what we what we do and how we live our life. And I mean, you did um, great work with uh, with him um, as uh, because you had a successful 18 year tenure, I believe, as the director of the Wolfsonian Museum. Um, and I wonder when thinking back on the work that you um, did together with Mickey, what what are you most proud of? I think it's it was such a I mean, Mickey, one, he always empowered people. And he always had really powerful women working around him and with him. And he was such a big thinker and such a big connector. I mean, he was really the first Facebook. (laughs) Um, Like he just, he realized the importance of networking and connectivity, but in a very analog and a very industrial age type of setting. I mean, he would like it took up until recently where he really started to understand how to use the internet or even uh, an iPhone or whatever. But he had like Rolodexes of thousands of people he had collected and stayed in touch with. So, um, I mean, he he was a big vision, and the collection that he had put together also paralleled the history of Florida or the period. Of, I mean, Florida is basically a modern city developed in the twentieth, late nineteenth, twentieth century with the arrival of the railroad. So, it was a uh, collection that not only paralleled the history of the development of Miami or modern Florida. But really, what were the forces that created uh, the modern the modern world? So um, I think what I'm most proud of is this was a private collection and really taking it into the public domain. Of um, he gifted it to FIU, so it's now it's been institutionalized. Um, he's the least institutional person, but the collection at least is institutionalized. It, it lives on as a really important um, research and exhibition center it's access to scholars all over the world it does a lot of you know it lets people it's like an open archive to really understanding the the rise of modernity yeah well i mean i i for one for those in the audience that are listening um and um, might be coming to miami sometime soon i would highly recommend a visit to the wilsonian and um you know i would attest to the great work that you did there with um with mickey and really the entire staff of individuals that you collaborated with um now you serve you know in in, in another capacity um i would say an equally important one as the director of the bakehouse art complex this is a very unique organization organization. Can you tell us a little bit about the mission of the Bakehouse? Yeah, I'd love to. So the Bakehouse was founded by a group of artists in the mid-80s when they were gentrified out of a neighborhood in Coconut Grove, when that neighborhood was undergoing a phase of revitalization. So they had rented studios and they gave classes and the rent went up, they couldn't afford it. And they realized that the only way to have permanence for artists in Miami was to try to find a site that they could acquire. And with community development block grant funds from the city and the county and an old industrial bakery that had closed down because its business had changed, um, it was able to acquire a 2.3 acre site with this, the first industrial bakery, that hence the name Bakehouse Art Complex, um, in 1985. 
um, and converted. It's a, the the building itself. We have about forty two thousand square feet of art making spaces and or fabrication spaces and exhibition spaces that serve our artists. But basically, it was intended to provide permanent and affordable art making and fabrication spaces for Miami artists and ways for the community to really engage um, in. Explore cultural production. So, if I understand you correctly, because I did um, research, you know, I'm preparing for our conversation. But what I'm hearing you say is that really this is an organization which has now risen to a kind of citywide institution, but it was one that was really begun by artists, artists who realized that the only way that they would be able to, I guess, empower themselves was by joining forces and somehow acquiring right. the the land, right? Or, yeah. or at least land with the building in it. Totally. And I mean, sadly, you know, there aren't that many, I mean, maybe there aren't that many organizations around the country where um, artists have been able to do that. I mean, this, I think it was just really, there was, they were really, it was prescient. They were really smart. They understood um, they didn't want to be displaced again, and the only way to not be subject to displacement was to was ownership. And at that time, the city had a significant amount of monies to invest in blighted and you know and to help stabilize economically, culturally, physically neighborhoods. And the neighborhood that we're in now, which now is like in the center of urban Miami and surrounded by the most hipster of neighborhoods and you know, the, you know, whether it's a design district, Alapada, you know, downtown, midtown, um, you know, the emerging little river. I mean, we're, we're right in the core. We're really almost the last, our neighborhood is almost the last piece of um, the urban core that hasn't really been, you know, touched. So we're on the edge of that. And they bought into this, they own this site, and it's just such a great asset to have today. Yeah, but you know when I when I hear you um, speak about the story of the bakehouse, at least the origins of it, and I'm thinking about possible listeners out there. There might be students, there might be architecture students, artists, art students. I think perhaps the lesson that I learn in listening to you is, you know, there is strength in numbers. You know, so you know the possibility to collect in a shared vision is important. You know, you might not be able to do it on your own, but you can do it if you gather with a group of individuals. And then I've often found that if you have great ideas, you can usually find the money. So you need the ideas and the vision, basically. And artists who might be, let's say, lacking, you know, the financing may have the ideas uh, to gather. And so I think your story or the story of the bakehouse could be an inspiration for others throughout the country that might be finding themselves in communities where the artists are displaced, for instance. Yeah. In fact, two of the three founders of the bakehouse were artists. So it was a big idea yeah. and it was an artistic vision. And, um, and it also, you know, really anchors the neighborhood. And it was this, as this neighborhood changes and tries to uh, move forward in a very smart way with a new revitalization plan created by the neighborhood. We're really hoping that it, you know, plays a, an even more important role not only in Miami's cultural ecosystem but also in the in the neighborhood itself. Yeah, I mean, you spoke about um, the location of the bakehouse relative to this these burgeoning neighborhoods that you were describing. And I think um, when we return during the second half of the conversation, we're going to speak a little bit more about that, um, the neighborhood, you know, Wynwood Norte, which is part of the larger Wynwood neighborhood, and then the bakehouse 
the future vision for the bakehouse. But, you know, before going to break, I also um, realized that you were part of a Harvard initiative um, that studied American cities, but uh, an initiative that focused in Miami. And I wondered if you could share a little bit about this. Like, what was your involvement with the, uh, I think it's the future of the American city? Right. I was um, for a couple of years, and this was probably from like about 2015 to up to COVID and mostly working with the then Dean Mosin, Mustafabi. Um, they were, and I think the, initi- the initiative goes on, but it's called the future of the American city. And it was focused on really trying to help look at what were the future role of architects in, you know, in the context of where, where the idea of mass urbanization, that the world is urbanizing much more quickly, that there's so many problems to be solved. Architects are trained to be problem solvers. There's certainly a lot of work to do. And they were really looking at issues of uh, um, mass urbanization, affordability, mobility, resiliency, um, you know, the challenges of how you mitigate the retention of cultural identity of a place with the demands and needs for densification and growth. So I was really a consultant to that in Miami to try to help put together um, ways for them to find little study you know, little study um, case studies to do here, both for the for the students as a way of, you know, how could they tackle things that then Miami could then pick up and run with and solve some of the problems with ideas that they had come up with. So that well, was think- a, that's actually what made me really interested in taking on Bakehouse because um, because I realized, you know, the issues. And I mean, the early part of my career, like you said, the first ten years of my career was involved in the city of Miami and in at the very hyper local neighborhood level. And Bakehouse is going back to that hyper locality, and I really, I really like it. I think you can get a lot more done if you start really local. And it's also what I know. I mean, I've lived here long enough, and I feel comfortable in this space. And so, there's still a lot to do at so many city levels. And I think that's why your program's so fantastic, just exploring the potential, the opportunity, and the needs of of cities um, yeah. as yeah. the world becomes more citified. <laughs> Uh, Well, we're going to take a short break, but when we return, Kathy is going to speak to us about her future vision for the Bakehouse Art Complex and the amazing community of artists that gather and work here on a daily basis. So please join us when we return for the continued conversation. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back to On Cities. I am continuing my conversation with Kathy Leff. Prior to the break, she was telling us about her um, successful, uh, really, career as a cultural leader in Miami. And we're talking to her about her current role as the director of the Bakehouse art complex. Kathy, can you describe for our listeners uh, the context in which the Bakehouse takes place, specifically the Wynwood neighborhood? I'd be happy to. So we are located in, uh, I mean, many of you who have either read about Miami and or been to Miami, um, the Wynwood area is like one of the coolest areas in Miami. Um, part of it is, I'd say it's, it's sort of um, bifurcated. So half of it is predominantly residential, and we sit at the edge of the residential uh, part of it, even though we're a light industrial building, a former industrial bakery. And the other half of the Wynwood neighborhood was formerly, it's mostly warehouses that were formerly um, part of a garment industry, both for the manufacture and wholesaling of garments. So that now has become what's called the Wynwood Arts District. And I think people have seen it's the most probably Instagrammable neighborhood with really fabulous uh, restaurants and uh, retail. And now it's also adding a lot of housing. And it's just like a really cool neighborhood that is now more mixed use. But then it was mostly light industrial, but serving the garment industry. So our part of the neighborhood, we're, we're, we're at the edge of what was the residential neighborhood where the people who worked in the garment industry lived and where the people who worked and there were 300 people who worked in the bakery. So it's where they lived. So the part of our, our neighborhood is mostly residential with things that you'd imagine would support a residential community, such as public schools, the parks, um, some of the social service infrastructure, um, churches. So that's where we're located. Yeah. I mean, the current, it, it as you know, or, or as most dense 
urban areas are experiencing today, Miami is experiencing rapid changes, obviously. Um, and the current Wynwood Norte, which is the section of Wynwood that right. you're describing, uh, revitalization district um, provided Bakehouse with a, I guess, change in zoning, land use, and density, um, something that you would need to add artist housing to the current site um, and also to renovate the building that you were just describing, the 1926 Industrial Bakery Building. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that process um, and also what this future vision for an expanded new art campus, which is going to, as I understand it, include a significant amount of housing for artists. Can you tell tell us a little yeah, bit about no, this? Yeah, no, it's a real. I think it's one of a really exciting process of how you can still a community can still come together and galvanize and organize and you know create a vision for itself, and that there is power to people and to collectivity and to you know people working together. So in 2000, and I think we started in 2018, 2019, there were a group of people in the neighborhood, longtime residents, newcomers, some of the public institutions that are based here, investors who are starting to move into the neighborhood. Um, We realized that we were unsustainable because, I mean, conditions had changed. The cost of our building was really expensive. Um, this is when you came on board, this is correct? 2018. 20, okay. Yeah, that artists couldn't even afford to rent space in our building. The business model then was basically rent pays the bills of Bakehouse. And, you know, so we were looking ourselves, Bakehouse and our board, you know, I was consulting with the organization and helping them look at different options of how it could financially move forward and how it could become sustainable and really become much more uh, valuable to artists in Miami. So we were zoned civic industrial. Uh, the same, and we knew that a land use change would be required because half of two thirds of our site is a parking lot or derelict structures that have been made useful by artists. The rest of the neighborhood, we started poking around and seeing who's out there, and a bunch of us got together. We formed what's called the Wynwood Community Enhancement Association. It still exists. It meets regularly. It's very inclusive, and we, um, you know, some of the people who were able to contributed money, we hired Plus Urbia and a land use attorney, Stephen Warnick. We met frequently and inclusively and with great participation, we came up with a vision plan for the neighborhood because we knew things were the forces of gentrification and development were around us and that we couldn't just do nothing and that there were needs in the neighborhood and there were great opportunities and cities evolve. I mean, they're not static or, or you know, they're organic and they but hopefully, you know, if you can do some planning, you can sort of move it in the right direction or try to nudge it in the right direction. So we came up with a community vision plan after a year and a half. Then County Commissioner, I'm then City Commissioner, now County Commissioner Keon Hardiman was amazed at the fact that the community came together and came up with this vision plan for itself and requ- requested that the City Planning Department codify that what was the Winwood Norte Community Vision Plan, which is all online. You can find it under Plesurbia or just search for Wynwood Norte Community Vision Plan. And it um, really laid out a path for the future of the neighborhood and with also a zoning code that would support that. Um, So during COVID, I mean, basically through Zooms and phone conversations and conference calls, rallying neighbors, you know, through any means that we could to come together with the city planning officials, they finished the codification and with the great work of Steve Warnick, who was our land use attorney for the neighborhood, mostly doing it all for free, um, basically created a zoning code 
that in the end gave us the right to add um, housing to our site. As I mentioned, we were zoned civic institutional. We had no rights to do anything, even if we wanted to sell it and try to put it towards some other purpose. I mean, the only entity we could sell it to would be a civic organization. And then we had all these building repairs and the city's requirement that the building be retained. So we were in a, you know, it was sort of a, a conundrum. So this now with the support of the neighborhood and the great support of the city and the current chairperson of the city, Christine King, um, who represents our district and the entire city commission administration, our neighborhood is now, you know, on a path to try to implement this revitalization. And we're hoping to get off as one of the main first projects because um, we've been thinking about a vision for our campus and know that just from um, what's going on in not just Miami, but any city that's rapidly urbanized, there are so many people that can't afford, you know, the cost of housing. So our mission is to support artists, and we realize that a big part of affordability is not only workspace, which we do provide and provide subsidized studios, so artists pay anywhere from zero to 25% of what it would cost to run this building um, for their studios. And it's all based on talent and financial need. And um, and then we realized that even with free studios, artists couldn't afford to be here because they had to have so many jobs just to pay the cost of living in Miami. So we, with this zoning, we will be able to, I mean, we won't be able to solve a problem, but we'll be able to at least make a statement about, you know, the need and use the resources that we have to address that need. So we're in uh, conversations. We did a selection process. We are in the process of formalizing a, ba a business framework um, with a local developer to add mixed income housing and new cultural uses to our site with a big um um, what would I say, with a, a priority to affordability. So, I mean, the most that we can do to make the project economically viable will be for affordable housing for artists or educators or other people in the community. I mean, there's such great need. And um, our artists, you know, obviously this would be a great situation for us and it spins off the utilization of our land to enter into this joint venture with a developer partner, if we're successful, it spins off enough resources for us to invest in the upkeep of our building and the ongoing operations and the rethinking. So the city just recently gave us $2 million to invest in uh, just upgrading the building so that we, <clears throat> excuse me, made, um, you know, some of the, deal with some of the uh, structural compromises. The Knight Foundation just gave us a million dollar grant to really understand the impact that technology will have on art making and the consumption of art, both in terms of audiences and users and makers. So we're really excited about this potential to be a, a, a live work community embedded campus that boasts has a physical presence, but has the potential to be anywhere, you know, have tentacles everywhere because of what technology allows us to have. Yeah. You know, when I hear you describe the project, um, I think it's a it's a fantastic one because you're looking at, um, I guess, the community of artists holistically. So you're not only looking at them in terms of uh, uh, the work that they produce, obviously the studios that they need, but you're thinking about holistically, how do you keep artists in the center of the city? How do you keep them as part of a larger community? And so I think, um, I know you're at the still at the, I wouldn't say beginning phases of this, but um, I know there's still quite a lot of time between now and the final, let's say, execution of the project. But I, I think um, if 
if imagined the way that you're describing it, I think it could be a project that would serve as a as a model uh, for these types of uh, initiatives across the country. So I wish you unbounded success oh, in this you. endeavor. <laughs> well, we have so much great support. I mean, our artists, we have an amazing community of artists. And what I've learned is, you know, the artists really are leading us in what we're doing. I mean, everything we're doing is responding to you know, what we understand that they need. And like you said, I mean, a city without artists, I mean, they reflect, you know, who we are, what we see and provide a lens through which to see the world in such a different way. So cities without artists would be really sad. So um, actually, how how do you select? How do you make a selection for your artists? How does an artist become involved with the bakehouse? Is there a selection process? Oh, there's definitely a selection. I mean, right now we have a waiting list of hundreds, but we do, you know, we it's all juried. I mean, we invite curators when we have openings, we have curators, other art professionals, more, you know, other artists who basically, you know, part of it's based on financial need. So we give priority to people who really can't afford a studio. And a prior, and right now, priority is Miami-based artists. That's our priority. As we ex- expand our campus, we will be building some housing to en- enable visiting residencies. And we're also starting to participate. Like this year, we're sending one of our ar- artists to Cité Internationale des Arts in Paris uh, on a residency program. So we'll plop an artist into an international community of artists in Paris and learn from that experience of, you know, what it's like to be in an international community and also to bring people here because our artists derive from the diversity of cultural backgrounds um, that comprise Miami's really interesting, you know, uh, demographic and, and population. So it's really, a, you know, a really interesting hub of culture it's a really interesting hub of cultural production. And um, I mean, we're, you know, we're also excited about the fact that we see that having a large number of people that peers really influence uh, success. I mean, we seem to be have a real contagion going on here of success. I mean, a lot of our artists are doing exceedingly well. I think the stability and not having to worry about where you're going to work tomorrow, are you going to be displaced from your studio? Is your rent going to go up? Can you afford it? That you can really... I mean, even if you have to have another job, which many of our artists do, but the time they're in their studio, they they don't worry about that we're kicking them out. And so we've seen over the past three years, we've had a pretty core group of people. I mean, we do have turnover and people go back to school or they move away for some reason or another, or they're successful and they take on a bigger studio, um, which is always exciting for us when they make place, you know, when somebody's so successful, they can move on. But we see the the influence of not only the stability and, you know, the affordability of their space, but the impact that they have on each other, you know, what they learn from each other and how it seems to be contagious. And I think that, um, yeah, we have artists now this year, at least four of our artists will be having or have had solo shows at, mu- at museums. And um, they're now entering into big public commissions. And so if you're anywhere near the Miami area, you know, we hope that you'll come and visit. I mean, we love, even though we might not have space for artists at the moment, we do try to stay connected to both a local art community. I mean, we don't think that we need to be limited by physical space. So as we think of our programs toward the future, there'd be other ways to be connected to artists, centers, and populations anywhere. I mean, there's no boundary. I mean, we will have a physical space, but also we'll be, can operate in any space. And um, and our artists work like that too. Um, I, I know that um, I think you advocate for all your artists equally, but since you mentioned a few of these artists that have maybe springboarded from, you know, working here into, let's say, an international stage, can you can you highlight a number of these for us or just yeah, share? Yeah, I'm really happy to. Well, one of our artists um, who 
really graduated, I guess, about three or four years ago. I think he's been here. He came here right out of New World School of the Arts, which is one of the magnet schools for you know all disciplines of art, performing arts, as well as visual arts. Um, I think he graduated in 2017. He was like painting in his apartment. He was working as a butcher, painting out of his apartment on tiny little canvases because he lived in an apartment with many other roommates, um, comes from the center of Florida. And so he was one of the names who was recommended to us. We gave him a studio. I mean, he was here every moment. He wasn't working in the this, in this butcher shop. And um, over COVID, he um, we had some of the local museums and curators as people weren't able to travel and people started looking at what talent is in Miami and really focusing on the local community a lot. Bonnie Clearwater, who is a wonderful curator and the director of the Fort Lauderdale Museum of Art, along with many of the other museum directors and curators here, you know, started doing studio visits, uh, virtual studio visits. She did a studio visit with him. He um, had a solo show last year at Fort Lauderdale Museum of Art. What He's is now, his, name? his name? Oh, I'm sorry. That's the... No, no. Tom Bills. No, no. Tom, Tom Bills. Bills. He's now represented by a really great gallery in Miami that has connections to Art Basel, the fair, and an international community of, co- of collectors, which is Spinello Project. So that's up now. Another one of our artists, Joel Gaetan, who will have a museum exhibit this year. I don't know that I'm about allowed to mention it yet, <laughs> but he was the one who was selected by a jury to be the first artist laureate and resident at this um, collaborative program residency that we're doing with, with Cité Internationale d'Art in, uh, in Paris. So he'll go there May and June. He also has a big project going on at Rockefeller Center now and is part of a show at Museo del Barrio. He's a wonderful ceramist um, who basically works out of our ceramic uh, space. He doesn't even have his own studio, but he, because we've run out of space, but he's just here every day working really hard. Um, Bernadette de Pujol, who came several years ago from Venezuela, has really focused on, I mean, she's an amazing painter. She's represented by David Castillo Gallery and another New York gallery. She was one of the you know, few artists from Miami who was actually in the main art fair at Art Basel and is selling internationally and has had shows in New York. So, I mean, I think yeah, a lot so of our artists, are, I mean, there's so many, it's yeah. hard to really even, you know, yeah. there's a hundred artists here. Well, I think, and, and what you're saying is true. It's, um, you know, being an architect and having studied in the studio, the physical studio, the collective environment of the studio, you know, for the artist or for the architect, quite frankly, I think it's invaluable, actually, the dy- dynamism that you find when you work collectively, you know, and I was curious to know if, if you've seen that changed in the post-pandemic or, you know, because many people have changed the way they work and there's many people that are not going into their places of work. They prefer to be at home, but I think that is different for the artist or, I mean, how, how do you see it? I think that, I mean, I feel like during the pandemic at first, you know, we were all like terrified and a lot of our artists who had part-time jobs were all losing their jobs. So some of them were museum educators, were visitor services staff of other museums. I mean, whatever they had, almost everybody had, I'd say more than 50% of the population here has one or many jobs and they all lost them. So we were like, okay, you know, we'll all go down together. You don't have to worry about rent. We'll get through this. And they really, after everybody sort of freaked out and was really nervous of the unknown, like everybody, they got down and they just started working and really focusing on their work. And it brought a lot of attention. They started getting, because a lot of city, a lot of people weren't traveling. So the local institutions started paying attention, the art and public places. Miami has a very successful and renowned art and public places program, Miami-Dade. 
they started paying attention to local artists and they started getting commissions and shows and asking to do things and populate empty spaces or, you know, so, I mean, we really have tentacles all over the place, which is really nice. So as we think about our future campus, this is sort of the headquarter, but, you know, the, you know, we can be anywhere, you know, mm-hmm. we can be someplace on a permanent basis out in a neighborhood or just have tentacles in different spaces, but this will always be like the big, the mother working home of, of the artists. But I think the artists, um, I love the, what you say, I think architecture and the practice of architecture has really influenced, I don't know if it was intentionally what people were thinking when they set up Bakehouse, but it is like a big, a big, huge studio. So the individual studios and some people actually have people in their studios, but mostly they're solo artists in a studio. But I think the access to the collective thinking and the brainstorming and the, the co-sharing of knowledge and tools and you know, networking and all that type of thing. I think like as architects who are creating big projects or small projects have to work together on solving something, Mm -hmm. they, this community comes together and it's a very tight and strong internal community with a strong interest in the neighborhood, which is amazing. It's how space influences creativity. Yeah, exactly. There's an energy that that you can't replace um, on Zoom, even though it's in such a powerful medium. Um, But there's something in the collective creativity that um, is hard to replace. So, but you know, it's interesting because you haven't only, um, you're not only an advocate for contemporary artists, you're also an advocate for the history of art in the city. And as we were walking through the bakehouse prior to the interview, you pointed out that um, the mural by um, Purvis Young, right. who um, that you are almost uh, finished restoring. Can you say something about this artist um, and oh, the work in preserving these murals? Yeah, this is a, it's like such a great story and it's a long story to tell, but Purvis Young was born, born in Miami, uh, had his practice. He, he mostly, you know, worked with materials that he found on the street. He grew, grew up in Liberty City in a, you know, a, a lower income neighborhood. He then lived in Overtown. Um, and he really was just painting with everyday materials, painting things that he saw in everyday life. Anyway, he through a funny story of, you know, just him getting, doing something that was like a public nuisance in his neighborhood. And he was, um, instead of given a fine, he was asked to do community service. And he was one of the artists at Bakehouse suggested he do a public mural involving the children at the school across the street. We have a middle school across the street from us that is for 1,200 middle school children. So that was done. It's dated 2003. We think it was done somewhere between 1998 and early 2000s. But it was this amazing mural that's very representative of his work. He, you know, died several years ago, but has had international acclaim. He represented the United States at the Venice Biennial, um, not this past biennial, but the one before that. He's collected internationally. Um, anyway, this mural was, having worked in a museum for, you know, over 20 years, just having this fear of art going to being lost or deteriorating under my watch was like like really painful. So this mural looked like it was disappearing. I thought it was disappearing because it's really faces east, it faces the sun. And so we applied for a Bank of America Charitable Foundation um, Art Conservation Project grant. Um, we were one of 18 international institutions, among which are uh, Notre Dame, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Vatican, the Nigeria National Museum, Kyoto. I mean, it's like an incredible... Uh, group of international collecting institutions. And because his work is so considered internationally, 
And this is one of three extant murals that exist of within the body of his work. Um, we got this grant to uh, conserve it. So Rosa Lowinger Associates is a Miami LA based conservation practice. Uh, we retain them and it's miraculously, it's like come back to life. I mean, it's, we, we thought that it was faded from the sun, but in fact, it just had a film on it, which probably protected the painting. And um, that has been meticulously and lovingly, you know, cleaned with brushes and tiny little sponges and water. And it is as vibrant problem, close to vibrant as it must have been in the 1990s when it was finished, but we're really excited about that. And that's a permanent public art piece. And, getting a lot of attention and so grateful to Bank of America and its um, charitable foundation for providing critical resources, not only to us, but to save you know the pe- global cultural patrimony. Mm. Yeah. The more I hear you speak um, uh, about the projects that you're working on, I, I think it's beautiful the way you have, uh, I would say, a global vision, you know, for the institution while nurturing the local artists, you know, and I think you referred to this kind of hyper local sensibility, yeah. but still this kind of outward international and global focus. So I think it's a beautiful um, kind of marriage between both the local and let's say the global or the universal. Um, and, and I almost in seeing that, um, um, the commitment in a way that, that you have, not just to the institution, but also to the neighborhood, you know, which I think you talked about in this kind of revitalization district overlay earlier, but even in the kind of care to which you're restoring that historic mural. So yeah. it's it's occurring large and small. Yeah. And our artists are really active in the community, in the neighborhood. I mean, you know, this is a neighborhood that especially during COVID went through a lot of challenges, people lost jobs and you know, it's not like there is the best, you know, digital communication system in our neighborhood. There's not been a lot of investment in public infrastructure um, that will be coming. So that's really one of the great outcomes of the revitalization district. But our artists all throughout COVID and even to today, regularly we get together, raise money. We go to Zach the Bakers, which is one of the best bakeries in the Wynwood Art District. And we buy loaves of bread because in the old days, um, Bakehouse, the American Bakeries Company, made Marita bread. And at the end of the day, if it was unsold, they would sell it for pennies or they would give it away. And so we just went back to the, you know, the DNA of our institution and started just leaving loaves of bread on the doorsteps. And then the artists would make prints that represented good luck um, iconography that represented the cultures living in this very diverse neighborhood. And they would give away prints, you know, works of art to the elderly housing, um, to going into the grocery store and thanking all the workers who are working and still selling food during this time to the schools. And so we really try to, you know, right now, I think the neighborhood is challenged and not so many people, many other people have so many other jobs that it's not like they have a lot of time to really consume art, but we really, you know, they love the idea that artists are located in the neighborhood, they understand the value of art to the neighborhood. And our artists are really connected and feel very responsible for the neighborhood. That's a beautiful story. It it um it's how the arts can feed the body and yeah. the and the spirit. Absolutely. So um so you know we're coming to the end of the uh, interview. <laughs> yes. I could keep talking to Kathy all afternoon and I'm asking all of my guests uh one simple question because I think it's important when we think about cities for us to have examples of what are great cities. And so I'm asking all my guests and I know you're a very you're an avid world traveler. So this question might be a difficult one, but Kathy, what's your favorite city? And why? Yeah. So I have like oh so many cities. I mean, one if 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 I picked a city that would be my favorite city in which to live, 
yes. assuming that you know live live as a foreigner living in a foreign city because obviously everybody has issues with the cities that they live in but i mean if i were to plot myself down somewhere it would be paris i mean i think it's one of the most humanistic beautiful and just there's just so many little details from the little cultural centers and neighborhoods to the su support of artists and the consideration of, I mean, culture, high and low history, all that. I mean, in terms of traveling, um, I, and I'll, I think that uh, my favorite cities are Tokyo. Um, I'd say Mex Mexico city and Istanbul. I mean, I like chaos. I have a tendency in unintentionally of creating chaos because I, I actually think I must have ADD or my brain just works really fast or moves fast. But I mean, I really like complicated cities. I like to try to figure out how you can really, you know, get into the culture of a place. And these are all mammoth cities and take a lot of time to navigate. I like cities that are not so obvious of how you really get into it, that they have really amazing histories and culture and traditions, and they're living, you know, they're as live today as they were the thousands of years ago when they were founded or built. Or So I like the, yeah, that whole trajectory of culture and, um, and the chaos of the modern city and the contemporary city. Yeah, I mean, I can attest to that. Having just been in Istanbul this past summer, it's an extraordinary, um, richly layered, historically, culturally um, place. And certainly Tokyo and Mexico are extraordinary examples as well. Um, so, um, Kathy, it's been a, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for all the work that you've done to really lead um, culture and the arts in the city. Um, I, for one, am grateful for all of the work that you've done and for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. And I'm going to ask all the listeners to please join me next week when I will be speaking with architectural photographer Stephen Brook. He's going to share his prolific work on the documentation of cities from Rome to Jerusalem and throughout the United States. You will not want to miss the conversation. And if you enjoyed today's episodes, please follow On Cities on Spotify, iTunes, or any other platform that you get your podcasts. And please follow us on the On Cities podcast on Instagram. Thanks again, Kathy. Thank you and so much. See everyone next week. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 